Hi, my name is Pastor Tony Garbarino of Providence Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you tuned in to hear a message from God's Word. If you'd like to find more information about us, please go to providencefw.org, providencefw.org. We seek to be Bible-based, gospel-saturated, and Christ-centered. So please enjoy now this message. Thanks for coming. Well, it really is a treat to be here to come worship with you. I've gotten to know Pastor Tony a little bit over these last couple of years, and so really a, a blessing to know him, and finally a, a joy to meet you all, his church family. So uh, it's been a treat for our family to come out here this weekend, and I do bring greetings from Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Um, it's got the name of Reformed in it only, but we are a Reformed and Presbyterian school, so you all are welcome to come visit us on campus anytime you're in the area. We'd be happy to show you around our, our uh, humble little institution, but really it's a, it's a treat to be there. Um, just training men with a call to pastor in churches, whether in the uh, Reformed churches or the Presbyterian churches, and so we've um, we've been thankful to God's uh, God's kindness and His care for us over the years, um, and we uh, we're thankful. Especially this year, we have a record incoming class, so we're really uh, thankful uh, to Him for that. But let's this morning turn to Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three. We'll be considering John the Baptist's call. It's part of why we sang out of Isaiah 40. We read Isaiah 40. You can, you'll hear uh, Matthew's citation of Isaiah 40 here in this uh, very passage. Well, we hear John the Baptist actually preparing that way in the wilderness. Let's, uh, let's hear from God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for when he saw rather many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff... He will burn with unquenchable fire. So far the reading of God's word. May he bless our time in it this morning. Let's ask for uh, him to, uh, let's ask him to be with us as we study it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you we can read it. That we have access to so many wonderful translations of it. And that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your voice because you have worked powerfully in our hearts, enabling us to hear your call. And so, Lord, help us to see your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. Hear our prayer for his name's sake. Amen. 
Well, John the Baptist really is one of these um, prominent characters in Scripture, one of the more famous characters uh, that we find. Um, he makes a real impression on us when we finally turn to the New Testament after pages and pages and pages of, of what I would say glorious Old Testament. So, but, but I do tease my, my colleagues at the seminary a bit who focus on that. I say I teach the majority of the Bible, but that's all, that's all our in-house joke. But, but when we do turn to the New Testament, we're right away introduced to John the Baptist here in Matthew, but especially in Luke where we read of this uh, remarkable birth story. Um, and how John the Baptist comes on the scene. He, he, he prepares for and precedes Jesus in very powerful ways. And yet as familiar as John seems to be throughout church history, in terms of hymns, even in terms of Christian art, John the Baptist is a bit tricky of a figure. Now on the one hand, I just mentioned his birth story. It's, it's remarkable. We find him uh, as a fellow opponent of the Pharisees. Matthew 11, verse 11 Jesus speaks very highly of John the Baptist. He says, among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Submit to you, that is no small praise. That's pretty significant words from our Lord of John the Baptist. And yet, on the other hand, his disciples even have some run-ins with Jesus as the Gospels go along. We have an example where, where John, from prison, isn't even sure that Jesus is the right one. In Matthew 11, he asks, are you the one who is to come, or, or am I supposed to be expecting somebody else here? You see a lot of confusion in John, so much so that even after the compliment of 11 verse 11 that we just read, Jesus says, and yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Almost sounds like he's, like he's dissing him a bit. We have John engaging in behavior and in activity and baptism that feels quite familiar to us. And yet, actually, John the Baptist is still an Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist is still an Old Testament prophet. Now, that may sound confusing, because if you went just a couple pages back, you saw it said the New Testament. So why did you get this guy from Chicagoland to come out and tell you that John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet? Well, we'll look at this. John, Jesus actually explains this in Matthew 11, verses 7 to 13. He starts in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. In verse 9, he says, What did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And then verse 13 really cements this status of his Old Testament role. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. That language, especially in, in Greek, gives the, gives the sense that he is that final culmination of Old Testament prophecy. John is that capstone, as it were, that all the prophets were sort of leading up to. He is Elijah to come. Elijah is sort of the fountainhead of Old Testament prophecy, and now we have the new Elijah here. He is that final installment. And even though he plays an introductory role to Jesus... Uh, he plays that messenger role in this new epoch, this new era introduced by Jesus Christ. We need to remember that the new covenant doesn't formally begin until Jesus' resurrection and ascension and a number of events that take place at the end of his life and ministry. So in light of that, we need to let John sound, well, like an Old Testament prophet. And he will in some of his emphases, especially. 
And yet we need to realize that though he has this status, though he, he plays this role in history, he does still speak to us. Just like the other Old Testament prophets continue to speak to us as well, even as we rightly understand the period in which they preached. See, John's message here in Matthew 3 is, is not merely for Old Testament Israelites, but it's also for New Testament Christians. And indeed, this message is one that, I, that our world needs so desperately today. And so this morning, we're going to see this. John calls us to repent and to have reordered priorities in light of the presence of Christ and his kingdom. John calls us to repent, to have reordered priorities in light of the presence of Christ and his kingdom. So we'll look at this in three main points here. First of all, John preaches the arrival of the kingdom. Secondly, we'll see how the Jewish leaders pursue religiosity instead of the kingdom. And third, we'll see how John preaches the superiority of Christ. So we'll look at how this passage unfolds in kind of these three, these three stages. So first of all, John preaches the arrival of the kingdom. Right, the passage begins with, with John the Baptist shouting out these very famous words, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom has drawn near. Now in the earlier chapters in Matthew 1, and especially Matthew 2, we've, we've heard of the arrival of the king. And now in chapter 3, John the Baptist tells us of the arrival of the kingdom itself. This idea of the kingdom showing up is well known from Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. I encourage you to, to read those sometime this week, and you'll hear that language of the kingdom that is to come. And really, these passages in Daniel were drawn upon by many Jews of Jesus' day uh, to, to undergird that widely held anticipation that the kingdom was going to come. Now, throughout the Gospels, especially through the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this theme of the kingdom of God is especially central. And, and when we see the kingdom coming in the Gospels, we have nothing less than that new creation rule, that new creation realm of Jesus Christ that we get glimpses of, especially in Revelation. We find that new creation breaking into the present in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Although, as that kingdom comes, it comes already in many ways, even though it is not yet the fullness of the kingdom that we still await today. That's why a lot of theologians describe the kingdom in the New Testament as already and not yet. It's not because they can't make up their mind. It's because the Bible seems to em emphasize aspects of each. But John comes then, on the scene, proclaiming a, a, a herald of this kingdom. And it's striking too that the Old Testament actually predicted that he would show up. Predicted he would arrive and be thought of as Elijah. Famously, the last two verses of the Old Testament, if you were to go one page back from what I flashed at you a moment ago, one page beyond that, we get to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Last two verses of the Old Testament. Last two words of prophetic revelation uh, that we have in the Old Testament where we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Final, culminating words of Old Testament prophecy, so it would seem, and then 
silence. Hundreds and hundreds of years of silence. Where's Elijah? When is Elijah going to come? I thought the prophet said he would come. Certainly he'll come soon. But silence. Until now. Until what we find here in, in Matthew 3. And so verse 4 then describes John's clothing and his diet chiefly to show us how he relates to Elijah in 2 Kings 1 verse 8, who dressed similarly with the same kind of belt, the same kind of garb. And also when he speaks about uh, uh, where he is located in the wilderness, this likewise alludes back to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 verse 4. We read a few moments ago, from Matthew 11 verse 14, that Jesus said that John the Baptist is Elijah to come. And so he's showing this fulfillment of Scripture in the arrival of John the Baptist. But Matthew is well known for citing Old Testament prophets. Already in chapter 2, he's, he's cited a number of places. And he resumes his citation of the prophets here in chapter 3 with this description of John as the voice of Isaiah 40 verse 3, this voice that is crying out, prepare the way. Now John's message, John's description of the kingdom here is, is centered on this call to repent. I'll say a little more about that in a moment here because repentance is chiefly in Matthew 3 pushed up against the, the counter-repentance as it were, the non-repentance of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But that is the call. The call is to repent because the kingdom is coming. And the chief image of the kingdom here in Matthew 3 is that of judgment. I mentioned earlier that the kingdom comes in a variety of ways. We see a lot of aspects of the kingdom that we associate with peace and with wholeness and with the Lord's good reign. And yet that chief image that is being focused on in Matthew 3 is that of judgment. When the kingdom comes, judgment comes. When the kingdom comes, the Lord will return. When the kingdom comes, the Lord will destroy his enemies. When he comes, he will purge his people. He will purge the goats out. He will cut the weeds out. And he will retain the grain and the lambs. Now in some ways, this, this judgment of the kingdom, in some ways this purging even, takes place already in Jesus' ministry. There's a number of places we'll read Jesus actually pronouncing woes on people, crying down the curses of the covenant against those who have rejected the Lord's word and have fled to other gods, sometimes the gods of their own making. We might even note that, that in his ministry, the final judgment broke in as well. But it broke in on the cross, where Jesus bore nothing less than that final end times judgment that God has in store. And yet, though there are these already aspects of the kingdom that we've been talking about, even these already aspects of the judgment of the kingdom, there are ways in, in which still all of this looks forward to Christ's second coming. Now, why is this? Why is this? I think this is one of the tricky things about reading the Old Testament prophets, and it's really one of the tricky things about reading John the Baptist. And it's because John was a typical Old Testament prophet. And when Old Testament prophets looked to the future, as God revealed them the future of the coming of the Messiah, oftentimes they tended to speak of both the first coming of Jesus and the second coming as part of the same kind of constellation of events. 
Now, a classic example that's given is that of, of, of driving toward a mountain range. All right, when you're driving, uh, I, I can't think of any good ranges out here. I think if we were to go south and east, perhaps we'd, we'd maybe find some, some larger ones. Just the other week, I, I thought of using this, the Chicago skyline, but we're not terribly close to Chicago here either. But we'll just use mountains as an illustration. As you drive, let's say you're going out to Colorado on vacation, and as you, are, as you see the Rockies come into view, you have this incredible jagged slash across the sky, this one range from, from right to left of the Rockies. Except you find that as you get closer, and as you start working around them, it's not just a single line of mountains, but they go for miles and miles and miles deep. Same way with Old Testament prophecy. The prophets often describe these various mountain peaks as part of the same event, and yet there's a depth to them that will be revealed more fully. Now, it's not that the Old Testament prophets were mistaken. It's not that God was trying to trick them. Instead, there's, there's some value in thinking of all these events as, as one, that it really helped to illustrate that there were not multiple comings of multiple kingdoms, but it was the one kingdom of God that would come at various stages in redemptive history according to God's good plan. He helps to highlight that coming of the kingdom even as it comes in stages. And we see that play out in the New Testament all the more. And here's one of these places where we see that at work. John describing that coming of the kingdom um, and describing the coming of Christ using that fullness of judgment language as well. Really, John, by doing this, by emphasizing it in these ways, John is saying to Israel, guys, it's time to take stock. It's time to wake up. The king is about to enter the city, and what's he going to find? What is he going to say about how the city has been cared for while he is away? So John calls on them to repent. Now John's message here draws people also to a concrete ritual action. He calls them to baptism. Now, scholars debate what precisely John's baptism meant. It's not the same thing as Christian baptism, even though it sounds the same and uses the same word. There's something different going on in John's work here and in the baptism that John administers. And we know it's not Christian baptism because Acts 19 verses 1 to 7 tells a story of how the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus. And he met people in Ephesus who had received John's baptism, but the book of Acts explains that that's why they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. In fact, these people who had received John's baptism say they weren't even aware there was a Holy Spirit. And so John's baptism prepared for Jesus, and yet it was not the same thing as being baptized into Jesus. And so what does Paul do? Paul then baptizes them into the name of Jesus, and it's at that point that they receive the Holy Spirit. See, that already kind of clues us in that John is doing something unique here due to his redemptive historical role. But there are a number of institutions and ideas then, mostly with Old Testament background, that do help us to think about what John's baptism symbolized and why that was so profound and, and honestly so provocative. Some, for example, have, have noted its similarity to what was called proselyte baptism in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Right? If there was a Gentile and, and they began to recognize that the God of the Jews was the true God, 
That he was the God of, of the Old Testament. And they wanted to be a part of God's true people. Then they would convert. Again, in the Old Covenant, they would convert to the people of Israel. And they would undergo a ritual washing. And, and with this kind of proselyte baptism in mind, you can imagine how the Jewish people all around the Jordan would be hearing this. John the Baptist telling them, you, the house of Israel, you too are dirty, you are filthy, and you too need cleansing in light of the coming of this kingdom. So be baptized. It's not just for Gentile converts, it's for all of us. But there's more to this imagery. Some have also noted how it relates to a general practice of, of Old Testament washings, of, of Old Testament ritual kinds of cleansings that we find. Now there is a difference, right? John's, John's baptism we, we sense is very much a, a one-time decisive act. It is not part of that daily washing regimen of the Old Testament. And yet it does seem to fit into that same concern for purity and recognizing uh, the need for cleansing. But there's also a very important interbiblical and redemptive historical connection that is drawn here. Because John then is baptizing specifically into the Jordan, the Jordan River. Now one thing we find in Matthew chapters 1 to 4 is that Jesus comes and recapitulates a whole bunch of events from Old Testament history. There's a number of things that ancient Israel did in the book of Exodus in particular, but throughout those books, Leviticus, Numbers, even into Deuteronomy, a number of things happen in those books to Israel that our Lord comes on the scene and reenacts. He does so in order to show that he is the true Israel, that everything Israel was unable to accomplish is accomplished in Jesus. We have the same kind of thing going on here in Matthew 2. Jesus went down to Egypt, just like Israel went down to Egypt in the days of Joseph. Matthew chapter 4 will go on to talk about how Jesus is tempted and fed in the wilderness. In that way, recapitulating that wilderness wandering period of Israel. But we'll find at the end of chapter 3 here, we didn't read the passage, but this baptism is something Jesus himself will undergo. You see, back in the Old Testament, Israel needed to plunge through the Jordan River before entering into that kingdom land, that promised land of Canaan. And here too, at the arrival of the kingdom, Jesus is doing that again. As the true Israel, he is plunging through the Jordan in his entry into that kingdom land of promise as well. There's been a new and better exodus in Jesus, and there's a new and better promised land. And so John's baptism helps to identify these repentant Israelites with Israel of old as a people accepting God's cleansing and, and, and readying them to welcome this kingdom that is at hand, this kingdom of, of Christ that has drawn near. And undergoing John's baptism in the Jordan will also prepare the Israelites of John's day for the reality to which the whole of the Old Testament pointed, using its types and its shadows and its symbols. The reality has come, and John is a herald of that reality. Now again, I've stressed a bit that there is a, a, a distinction, there is a, a, a redemptive historical disconnect that from us today in the New Covenant Church, and yet we're confronted with that same kingdom today. 
Right? For them, the, the kingdom was something they looked forward to. It was not quite here. Whereas for us, the kingdom is here already, but in its not yet form. And that's important for us. We need to recognize that with the kingdom being present as it is today, it's not life as normal. It's not one day after the other, one week after the other, doing our, our, our best to find our way. No, it's living in the light of Christ's reign now. I don't know about you, but, but there's a lot of disturbance going on in this country particular as we think about an upcoming presidential election. And there's a lot of concern, and maybe, maybe we've even got a little tired of those, of those social media posts reminding us no matter who's elected, Christ is king. But I want to suggest that that really is important. The kingdom is here, beloved. The king is reigning. And leaders come and go. Societies ebb and flow. And we ought to seek with wisdom to elect leaders who will govern in good ways. And yet we must always remember that our citizenship is chiefly in that kingdom. We're not making utopia here. But this kingdom's presence imposes itself upon us, calling us to, to be mindful of its presence. It's part of what we're doing this morning. We come to gather for a kingdom meeting, as it were, for a covenant renewal ceremony to remember our true citizenship, to remember that no matter where we're from, chiefly our citizenship is in heaven. And that gives us meaning in this life now. That gives us confidence in this life now, in all that we do. Well, that brings us to our second point this morning. The Jewish leaders pursue religiosity instead of the kingdom. I wonder how John's preaching would be received today. Uh, I, don't, I don't know your town very well. Maybe it was a public area. Uh, if John the Baptist showed up, well, you got a river. We camped by it. Um, if, he, if he started calling out, you know, this kind of a message, with this kind of, of tone in his voice, uh, how's Fort Wayne going to respond? I think the... Uh, Probably average Fort Wayneian and probably the average uh, Christian even might think he's being a bit extreme. This is something of an outmoded view of God. Isn't all this judgment talk? Isn't that Old Testament language? That was the old God. Uh, now we have more a God of love. How would, he be how would he be received? It's interesting to think about. The message is indeed a stumbling block. The fact that there is a judgment that we need saving from. And that God sent Jesus to do that very thing is, is something that offends a lot of people. And yet it didn't offend the Old Covenant Church in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the Jordan region. Instead, they, they came out in droves, verse 5 tells us. They heard his preaching and, and, and they came out. John called them to repent and they did. They showed sorrow for their sins. They came out and they confessed their sins. And they began, began turning from their sins. They began turning to God. And loving and following His ways instead of all their, their self-created ways that they thought would bring them wholeness and righteousness. No, they turned to God and depended upon Him. Repenting of their sins and embracing Him. We should clarify, not all of them did that. Great majority did, and yet Matthew zeroes in on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees are really the chief opponents of Jesus' mission. And here in, in Matthew 3, they're joined by this aristocratic priestly group called the Sadducees. 
kind of an unlikely pairing of people, right? Uh, when you when you get two people who really don't like each other, but they both don't like that person more, they can kind of team up. It's kind of what we have going on with the Pharisees and Sadducees here. Now Matthew 16 will will pair them up again. It will warn against the the leaven or the the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is going to warn uh, against that, but we do have their teaching going on here too. And in a way, we're being warned against that. And yet here, their, their teaching is really summed up in their behavior. Two things that the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing that John the Baptist calls out. First, they are presuming on their Abrahamic ancestry. And secondly, they are not bearing fruit that is in keeping with repentance. It is interesting that they came to John at all. right? Maybe they were just curious, coming to check out this new figure who is attracting a lot of attention. Uh, they, they kind of preferred when all of Israel's attention was on them. And yet here comes this John the Baptist who's drawing their attention away. Uh, perhaps they're just coming to see who this figure is who's challenging them for their, their kind of place of priority in the community. It, it may even be that they were coming to be baptized. Again, there's some ambiguity in the Greek translation here. If that's the case, though, then... Well, they're opportunists. They saw John the Baptist's popularity. Uh, They wanted the people to think that John wasn't so different than them, and here they come to be baptized by him as well. They could more easily retain their power and control over the community, and they could kind of push John to the sidelines a little bit later. Seems like a few different reasons why they would come, but whatever reason that they came for John the Baptist, it was for the wrong reasons. Look at the contrast. In verse 5, we saw the people were cut deep by John's preaching, not the Pharisees or Sadducees. Right? The, the people saw their need for forgiveness, not the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. The people saw John's baptism as a tremendous opportunity to prepare for the coming kingdom, as an opportunity to prepare for the king, not, not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Seems instead that the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were more interested in power and in prestige than in, in showing that God was at work in their own hearts. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not look like sinners who were seeking mercy and who were resting in God's forgiveness. Sinners resting in that and, and living gratefully in light of that. In fact, that's what kept them from being good leaders in Israel. Is that their identity was, was not in trusting that God was using their imperfect lives unto His glory, recognizing that He was at work in them as they were facing Him, but instead their identity was wrapped up in their pedigree as children of Abraham. They saw being children of Abraham as sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. But John sort of turns this on his head and he denies that they're the brood of Abraham and instead says that they are a brood of vipers. We read in verse 9, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Look at John saying, You you think so highly of yourselves for having Abrahamic ancestry. Look, it doesn't take much to have that. God can give it to these rocks. He can make these rocks descendants of Abraham. And in verses 8 and 10, he's telling them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? John is saying, look, here is where it really matters, and here is where you're bone dry. 
You need a heart change. And nothing in your life shows that. Nothing in your life shows that you think you need God's mercy, that you want to be a part of God's redemptive plan, that your boast is in His mercy alone. Nothing in your life, O Pharisee and Sadducee, is showing that what drives you is seeing the ends of the earth benefited by God's glory, which is being revealed through Israel. And John says, you're almost out of time. This fantasy world you're leading in where you play religious leader is about to end. That question of identity is so crucial for us. Right? We, we can misidentify ourselves today as well. So easily seeking our identity and maybe in the world and its values, the world and its definitions of greatness, its assessment of when we've actually achieved the good life, right? When your portfolio looks like this, you've made it. When your degree says this on it, you've made it. When you have this certification, now you have meaning and worth and value. We can buy into that, can't we? When we drive that vehicle. Sometimes it's even things that don't seem as out there. Maybe it's our, our family connections where we place the, the greatest meaning and identity in our life or our role in the community or, or maybe even our role in the church. Right? Like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we also can engage in our own versions of seeking baptism, right? of, of engaging in church activities, even good activities like worship or, or Bible study because it ultimately props up our view of ourselves. See, I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm committed, I'm, I'm focused on the church, not on, not on all these other things that are out there. I'm worth saving. And yet the remarkable thing is these kinds of identities don't have the resources for fruit bearing. They can't enable us to, to give these fruits of thanksgiving that we get only from our gospel identity in Jesus Christ. I'd suggest to you this morning that an identity of law, an identity of performance, an identity of pedigree is an identity of bondage. Whereas an identity in Jesus Christ is a humbling one, and yet it's also a freeing one. See, we don't have to jockey for power to have value in this world. We don't have to jockey for power to have assurance that we're going to be okay Instead, we can just join in the throng of sinners seeking a Savior, embracing His righteousness by faith alone, and encouraging one another in our thanksgiving for His mercy. That brings us to our final point this morning that John preaches the superiority of Christ. John continues his reproach of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but he kind of flips the argument on them. It's like in these final verses, he says, look, you're coming to me for baptism. But remember, this baptism is just to prepare for the coming one. I'm the one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. God is about to return. His kingdom is drawn near. His Christ is at hand. And, and listen to how he words this in verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist explained to his disciples that he wasn't the main event at this concert. 
He wasn't the main act. We read in John 3, 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears Him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to John as though John were a really big deal, as though their focus should be on John and his leadership, why it's such an airball, right? He's almost saying to them, look, you're worried about me. And yet the coming Christ is mightier than me. You think I've got sway with this people here, but the coming Christ is one that I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. His dirty shoes I'm not even allowed to carry. John's trying to focus them on the real priorities they should have. He shows them the real end game. With the kingdom drawing near, the judgment is drawing near too. Now is the day of decision, he's saying. Now is the day to think about ultimate allegiances and eternal destinies because the one who is coming is the grain winnower. The mass of Israelites on the threshing floor are about to be picked up in the winnowing fork and thrown into the air, and the wind is going to do its work. Those from Jerusalem and Judea and from the Jordan region who had recognized their need and who had come to John and fled to God's offer of mercy, they're going to fall down back to the threshing floor into a pile of precious wheat. Whereas those Pharisees and Sadducees who are coming and just splashing around in the river, the wind's going to blow them away, along with the chaff. This is really a, a pressing issue for them. The Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is an image found in Isaiah 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath Literally in Hebrew, his, his spirit, his, his breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. Hear that sifting language again? And to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. Now, earlier we mentioned that the, the Old Testament prophets saw that single mountain range but unlike the Old Testament prophets prior to John, John saw firsthand the depth of that range. He got to get a sense of how the kingdom was coming at various times. And on the one hand, it confused him, which is why in John 11, or Matthew 11, rather, John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was actually the Messiah. Because John, now sitting in prison, having proclaimed that Jesus had arrived, thinking he was the Messiah, is saying, well, where's the judgment? Why am I still in prison? Why aren't your enemies winnowed yet? But on the other hand, John in this unique place is able to see how deep was God's compassion and His grace and His patience. Because Jesus responds to John the Baptist's inquiry in John 3 by saying, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Here you go, John. The king is here and the kingdom is here. And John got to see 
kind of both sides of that. Got a glimpse unlike any prophet before him. And yet this is a fairly heavy passage, isn't it? When you think of John's crying out, and you can hear that word repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Be ready. It's intense. And yet its intensity is not meant to to terrify for terror's sake, but rather to shake sinners out of their daydream, to show them their short-sightedness. Now they looked forward to this at-hand kingdom. As we've said already, we look backward to this at-hand, this already, all-around us, even though not yet, kingdom. And as we hear John's cry for repentance, we're reminded this morning of our own repentance, that we know that Christ has come. Christ has died for our sins on the cross. And yet, He was also raised up for our justification. And that Christ now has ascended and intercedes, reigning in His session. Every day, we see evidence of His reign as hearts are changed. We see evidence of the presence of the kingdom as as broken lives are are being put together bit by bit, slowly but surely. We see the kingdom of heaven at hand. We see that it's drawn near this morning. As people who otherwise wouldn't have anything in common gather together for worship and in so doing testifying to the reign of Christ the King and delighting in the benefits that He pours out into our lives today. It's really remarkable to see that kingdom at work now, because as we await Christ's second coming, we delight day by day to see new disciples added to our midst, joining in this throng, crying out, Holy, 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 to the Lord God Almighty, resting in His grace, rejoicing in His mercy, and giving thanksgiving to Him. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word, knowing that we can come and repent because that decisive event has been completed. That Christ has borne the curse of our sin, but was raised from the dead so that we too will be raised. And so we thank you, O God. Be pleased with our worship. Guide us this week. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in this morning. Uh, if you'd like more information uh, about Providence, if you're in the greater Fort Wayne area and would like to visit us, please go to our website, providencefortwayne.org. If you'd like to give, if you were blessed by this message, if you'd like to have more information about the faith or about growing in your faith, uh, we'd love for you to get connected with us. Thank you.